This is Real Talk, the Customer Insights Show with Jen Vogel, a top-rated live stream and podcast in the market research and insights industry. We stream live on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube, and you can listen on all major podcast channels. Join Jen and her guests for a weekly discussion around topics that will help you understand your customers better. Real Talk is presented to you by Vox Pop Me, the leader in video research and ranked number one in qualitative research by Grit two years running. Here's today's conversation. Hello, insights professionals, marketers, and everyone who wants to understand their customers better. I'm your host, Jen Vogel, and today we're talking about positioning. Why is it so hard? How can we get it right? And how do we know when we're done with it? To discuss that topic, I am so excited to be joined by April Dunford, founder of Ambient Strategy, author of Obviously Awesome, How to Nail Product Positioning So Customers Will Get It, Buy It, and Love It. Welcome to the show, April. Hey, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to have this chat. There's certain people that, you know, I've read their books or, you know, seen their content that I'm just a huge fan of, and you are one of them. I love your book. I've read it oh, twice, awesome. once on audio and once on written paper, like the old fashioned way. But anyways, I'm, if I fangirl a little bit, then please don't mind me. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm surprised actually at how many people do audio and the and the book. I've heard that from a number of people, and I think that's interesting book buyer behavior. Yeah, totally. We should dig into that maybe in another show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so to kick us off, let's get right into talking about product positioning. Why is it so hard? And where do you see companies struggle? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It, the funny thing about positioning is that it's not a new concept. It's been around since the, the since the early 80s. There was this book written by these guys, Reese and Trout. It's called Positioning, the Battle for Your Mind. And, um, and that's been around since pre-internet. So you, you think we'd be really good at this and we'd have it all figured out by now. Um, but I think positioning is really, really misunderstood. Um, most folks, I think, confuse positioning with things we want to do with positioning once we have it. So people will say, oh, I know what positioning is. It's just like messaging or uh, we're writing a tagline or my personal pet peeve is when people talk about brand positioning, which really bugs me because I think there's branding and there's positioning and those two things are actually totally separate. So I think about positioning as um, positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at delivering some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. Um, that, that's a mouthful, but you know, maybe a simpler way of thinking about it is it's like context setting for products. Context is important because that's how we make sense of things, particularly new things that we haven't seen before. But to answer your question, like why is it so hard? Um, I think for most companies, a lot of companies fall into the trap of just kind of default positioning. Like there's this idea like, hey, we're database people. We're building a database. What else could it be? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like this isn't hard. We'll just position this as a database. It, could, it literally couldn't be anything else. Um, but what I've learned is that often we get a product out in the market. Um, we make changes to it. The market itself changes. And 
eventually we get to this point where, you know, we think of it as one thing, but a new customer coming at it fresh looks at it and says, nah, you know, I don't know if it's really that thing or not. And this confusion or this gap between how we think about the product versus how uh, the customer thinks about the product actually results in all of this confusion. And so I think the reason it's hard is because we tend to not position deliberately. Mm. Oh my gosh, so much good stuff in there. Um, you know, I think uh, that like what you're describing about that context setting and, mm. you know, it's not just this is a database. This is, you know, this is what it is in the context of how your customer is going to use it or think about it. And, and that whole idea of bridging the gap between how we think about our product and how our customers think about our product is right. like really where the hardest part is. Um, and we were just talking about this a couple of weeks ago on the show about, you know, the the famous, you know, Simon Sinek, like you need to understand your why and and really why that's maybe not the right approach that, you know, understanding your why as a company <laughs> or a product doesn't actually bring the customer into, you know, like I don't like it, like some of this stuff, some of this stuff goes around and I think intellectually it's interesting, right? Um, and, I, and I think, you know, there are some folks that, write books and do speeches like, you know, and I think Simon Sinek sort of falls into this. And um, I think they're good for getting us to think a different way about something, mm. but they're not necessarily meant to be um, taken super literally. <laughs> because like, you know, I've seen companies come to me and they're like, we did this whole exercise, but our why, and now we don't want to do with it. And I'm like, you don't do anything with it, man. <laughs> like, like, I don't know what to do with it. But <laughs> But like in the check the box to move on. Even if I use the examples that that Simon Sinek uses in that book, you know, like we don't buy Apple because of their products, we buy because of their why. And I say, great, what what's Apple's why? Mm -hmm. No one knows. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's like, well, I, I guess that's not why we're buying it then. But right, um, you know, but I don't that's think this stuff is meant to be taken that literally. I'm, you know, I totally but, agree. Yeah. But, but the folks like us that are in the trenches actually trying to do stuff, you know, like sometimes we read these books or I do anyways, or I read these books and I'm like, come on, man, what am I supposed to do with this? Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's so true. And I mean, the Apple example is a great one that, you know, it's not the why that I understand. It's the, it's the context that they've put their products in for me. You know, they're not telling me, I have no idea how many pixels the camera on my phone has. <laughs> right. I could tell you some of the other competitors because that's what, that's how they position. They, they tell you what the product is, but Apple is selling something, you know, a sort of experience or a right. lifestyle or that's something right. that I feel like I want um, and I want to be a part of. I don't actually know all that much about the product, nor do I think the product itself is the best well, plus there's this whole sort of sort of ecosystem like once you're in it's very difficult to get out <laughs> so they just need to sell you the first one and then after that you're not going anywhere <laughs> that's right yes i just need more things that integrate with the first thing i got and it's, it's just actually that. really hard to, it's really hard to get out <laughs> um, like, I'm, like i'm not in the i'm not in the apple ecosystem like I, I actually just got rid of my last apple thing which was i used to use a uh a, a, a 
MacBook Air. Yeah. And I just got rid of that and replaced with PC. But it, it, it's, it's mainly because like I had was a smartphone user before the iPhone. And so when the iPhone came out, it was, it was a pretty crappy smartphone. And so it took me, it took like, it wasn't until the iPhone three or four where you could actually even roam with your phone in Europe. And I was like, I'm not giving up my perfectly good phone that roams in Europe and everything else for this thing that doesn't even work in half the places I go. And by the time they caught up there, all the phones were all the same. And so, yeah, I just didn't know. Now I can't go because I'm too locked into the Android thing. Like it's the same reason that the Apple people can't leave. Right. Like it's too hard to make the switch from one to the other. It is hard to make the switch. There are other products that it's a bit easier, uh, but certainly oh, with forget the, it. Yeah, you get trapped. It's like the mafia or something. <laughs> well, and so let's. I mean, so we've talked about like it. Positioning is not just what the product is, right? You've got to understand the context and and how your customers think about it. So how does the, like, what's the role of understanding customers? What tips can you offer to to kind of get to them and and understand their context or how they think about your product to help with that positioning? Right. So there's a few things that I think that are really critical to understand if we're thinking about positioning and we want to think about how to, what should we know about our customers? So The first one is we need to understand how a customer makes a purchase decision. And this is, you know, I don't work much in consumer products. I work mainly with B2B companies. And so in B2B, um, this is often not a very straightforward process at all. Like typically when we sell something into a company, um, there are many people involved in making that decision. And so the, the data tells us it's between five and eight people that are involved in making a decision to buy a particular piece of software for a business. So we need to understand, you know, we need to understand who the champion is for that deal, meaning the person that's doing the bulk of the work to evaluate the product and how it's going to evaluate the product, figure out who's going to be on a short list, figure out how we're going to make a choice. Um, But we also need to understand a little bit about who else does the champion need to get on board to make this deal happen? So sometimes there are end users you have to worry about. Sometimes there's um, an IT group or security or legal. Um, Sometimes they're not the economic buyer. There's a person above them that actually writes the check. So we need to understand how that person needs to convince them. So that's a lot of understanding, like what is the, what is the purchase process? Uh, So we need to understand that Um, this, other bits that we need to understand is that we obviously need to understand the, you know, the pain and the problem that the customer is wrestling with. But even more importantly in positioning, we need to understand the customer's perspective on what alternate solutions there are. And so, again, if I think of a typical B2B sale, typically if they have a problem, they're already solving it some way. And often that way is terrible. So they're doing it with a spreadsheet. They're doing it with interns They're doing pen and paper. They're solving things manually. Maybe they're using their old, terrible ERP system that was never designed to do this particular task. And they're doing it that way. I need to understand that. Like, what is this status quo in the account? And then I also need to understand that when the, when the customer wakes up and says, you know what, we can't keep doing it that way. We've we've got to do something else. 
I need to understand what that trigger is. Like, what is it that, you know, does something break? Do they have an accident? <laughs> does it get a new, does this person get a new boss? Does somebody come in and say, oh my gosh, we're doing it this way. We know we shouldn't do it that way. Like what happens to trigger a purchase process? And then when they do get into a purchase process, how do they make a short list? Like in B2B, we don't just buy the first thing we come across and say, ooh, shiny red one. Let's get one of those. Uh, you know, I got to justify this to my boss. I got to justify it to end users, to NT, I don't, to IT. I don't even know who else. And so I can't just buy the first thing I come across. I need to make a short list. I need to explain to my boss how I make, made a short list. So how do, how do your customers do that? So we need to understand that. We need to understand who lands on the short list. And then, you know, of course, we need to understand why do they pick us and why not the other ones? Hmm. I mean, it sounds so you make it sound so easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's easier to talk about than it is to actually do it. It really is. And, you know, one of the things I find certainly about like understanding the pain and you said it perfectly, like what is the trigger for you know, solving that pain in a different way. Like how painful is that pain? Right. Because I find oftentimes you can, you know, a customer will say like, yes, absolutely. That is a pain that I'm experiencing or the solution yeah. I have for solving that is not sufficient, but <laughs> let's rank that. Oh, there's my dog. Welcome to the show. Um, <laughs> um, you know, let's rank that on a scale of all the pains you experience. Right. At any given time, I, as a customer, as a buyer of software, you know, I'm experiencing more than one pain. Um, totally. So I might say, yes, that pain that you're talking to me about, totally. Ugh. I totally experienced that. It's not my biggest yeah. pain, right? I, I think people go about this in a weird way. Like, I, like a lot of companies, and maybe even I did this when I was junior, like, you know, we have this product and then we would get together in a room and we'd say, what's the pain that this solves? <laughs> and I think that's a terrible way to go about it. <laughs> or even worse, we would say, we sell to these kinds of customers. What kind of pain do they have? Mm -hmm. And we're this crummy little startup. We do like three tiny little things. Like customers have all kinds of pain and, you know, and, and the vast majority of pain they have, we don't solve. And so, um, you know, I changed my thinking about this a lot as I, you know, as I moved along in my career. And in particular, I spent a lot of time reading Clayton Christensen and Jobs to Be Done. And, and you know, in Clayton Christensen's Jobs to Be Done stuff, there's this story about the milkshake, this famous milkshake story. The product managers all know this one, which is, um, you know, there's this company, they're a fast food restaurant, and they're selling milkshakes, and they want to make a better milkshake. And so, they're trying to figure out what can they do to make this milkshake better. And they do this, you know, this research and they find out they sell a lot of milkshakes in the morning and they sell them in the drive through Like, what's up with that? <laughs> and then they find out, well, oh, actually, people got a long commute and they're bored and hungry. And so the milkshake is perfect because it fits in the cup holder. And unlike a, you know, a breakfast sandwich, it doesn't dribble all over my suit. And, uh, but you know, and it, but it's also kind of thick and it lasts a long time and it's sort of boredom relief on a long drive and blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, and so what they did to improve the product was they said, oh, okay, the, the, the job jobs I'm trying to do or the, the, you know, the pain they have is boredom and I need something that I can eat in the car without making a mess of myself. But when I thought about that story from a positioning perspective, 
what I thought was really interesting out of that observation was the competitive comparable. So instead of going to the customer and say, what pain do you have? I could have just went to the customer and said, well, look, if you didn't buy the milkshake, what would you buy? Mm. And they would say, oh, I'd buy a breakfast sandwich or a donut or whatever. And what they're not saying is I would have bought a Coke or a Sprite or something. And so if I knew what you were comparing me to, I could infer a lot about the problem. Mm-hmm. And I could infer the positioning, you know, maybe I shouldn't be positioning this thing as a milkshake. Maybe I should be positioning it as a breakfast smoothie or something, right? Yes. <laughs> so in B2B, I think the more we understand about what customers are comparing us to, the more we can get our arms around, you know, how we're going to win. Like, well, how would I be better than a breakfast sandwich? Well, in the drive through that's kind of obvious. <laughs> How would I be better than a donut? You know, like, and if I understand the situation of the customer and who they're comparing me to, I could maybe understand what, you know, what have I got that the alternative doesn't have? Well, especially when you're thinking about products, whether it's B2B or B2C that are new or innovative or, you know, don't have a direct competition, understanding what you're replacing is really helpful. And, and to your point, I mean, I've done that like pain analysis of like, what, what pain are our customers experiencing? And then presenting that to people and people going, well, you know, I'm like, this is the number one pain. They go, well, but we can't solve that pain. Like that's not the one I'm interested in hearing about. I'm like, this 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 drives me crazy on the sales side of the house, because what I see happening in sales is I see a lot of sales reps get trained to do that. So what they're trained to do is to go in and have a, and and the starting point of a sales conversation is let's have a conversation about your pain. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a waste of time a lot of the time, because again, customers got all kinds of pain. And especially if we're a startup, we solve one little thing, one little thing. So why don't we just assume they have that pain or why don't we just qualify them on that one Mm. and then be done with it? And instead, what we have is this thing, and it's like sales therapy, right? I'm going to come in and say, tell me your problems, all your problems. <laughs> We're going to spend 20 minutes talking about that. And then and then why? I have no idea why, because I'm going to pitch you the same thing at the end of that anyway, and it only solves one of those things. So I might as well go in and say, and say you know what? We work with a lot of companies like you, and what we see is they're wrestling with this. Is that true for your organization? Because if it's not, maybe we don't need to talk today. <laughs> right. Yes, it's so true. I mean, they're, I mean, they're, we're all guilty of that, right? Um, like we think that's... we're selling professional services here where we can solve anything with you know custom oh. stuff, but we're not. We get this crummy little SaaS thing. It only does three things, man. <laughs> Right. This is it. This is what you get. That's all you get. Like if you either want it or you don't, man. (laughs) I I like that sales approach. I think we might need to rethink our. Well, it's like on, like, and and like not joking. A lot of the companies that I work with, I start out with this idea, and it's kind of hard to get the sales reps out of that because Mm -hmm. it's been they've been trained to do that. Mm -hmm. Like I need to do discovery first. And this yeah. discovery is uncovering the pains. And that made, that makes a lot of sense if we're selling professional services. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense if we're IBM and I could pretty much solve any pain you have because I have a super broad portfolio. 
But in when we're in startups doing something that's really narrow, I think that's just a waste of time. And I think that's I think that's just bad sales practices. To be that's some that's some really good advice. <laughs> we might take that away. Calling up here, going, wait, that's not good. She should shut up. <laughs> No, I love it. Let's challenge the 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 traditional way of doing things, right? And do do something a little different. Well, I um, said this at a conference once. Yeah. And you know, it was a bunch of early stage startup founders and there was a mix of marketing and salespeople too. And uh, you know, and I was talking about how I think people should build a sales pitch for, you know, SaaS startup. And some guy at the back put up his hand and said, well, hang on. Like, don't we have to do this thing at the beginning and ask them all about their pain and all this stuff? And I'm like, but but it, it doesn't matter what they say. <laughs> we still only solve this one thing. Like, it's performative. Like, why are we doing that? And you can see the whole room kind of going, hmm. <laughs> I never really thought about that before. People came up and asked me about that afterwards. Like, I never actually thought about why are we asking these all these questions? Because we end up go rolling into the same pitch regardless of what they say. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's really the key is to understand the context in which they're gonna right. use you um and and sell on that platform. You know, yeah, like I, I really think if when we're doing positioning work, again, the anchor is what do I got a position against? Like, so if I didn't exist, what would a customer be doing? That's what I really need to understand. And what they'd be doing is they'd be using whatever their status quo thing is, spreadsheet, interns, manual process, or they would start a sales process and they'd, they'd make a short list. So really for positioning, what I really need to understand is who's my status quo, who ends up on a short list, and that's all I got a position against. Because there might be other alternatives for doing things, but these are the only things in my in my customer's consideration set. Then all I've got to do is position against that. Mm -hmm. So I think we can do good positioning by saying, okay, stake in the ground. This is what I got to beat in order to win a deal. And then I can sit down and say, well, what have I got that they don't have? Like, and I've got capability, and these are features, right? Capabilities of the company features. I can fill up whiteboards with this, right? All kinds of stuff. And then what I can do is go down that list of capabilities and translate this to value. Like, why is that, you know, it's it's like your megapixels on the camera thing. It's like, I got 29 megapixel cameras. So what? So what for my business? What, you know, why does anybody care about that? And I can translate that to value. Now, typically when we do this for a B2B SaaS company, we go down that list, we go to translate to value and we don't get 59 points of value. We get two or three value buckets or value themes. And then once I get that, then I can say, look, we're the only company on the planet that can do this for your business. Here's how we do it. We can do this for your business. Here's how we do it. We can do this for your business. Here's how we do it. And then once I've got that, then I can actually lean back and say, okay, like this is my differentiated value. This is the value that I can deliver that no other solution in the market can deliver, but not everybody cares the same about that. So what are the characteristics of a target account that make them really care a lot about the value that only I can deliver? And that's where the magic happens. I got this value that we're the only people that can deliver. And I got these kind of customers that really, really care a lot about that. That's where the magic happens. <laughs> mm, 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what are some of the tactics that you would suggest to get started with discovering that? Like, how do you know right. what those alternatives are that people are using and what that profile is of that buyer that cares about that? Yeah. So if, if you're a product that hasn't launched yet, this is very hard. <laughs> you don't know. And so if you're a product that hasn't launched yet, if you've done good customer discovery research, you might have some guesses at this, but that's all they are is guesses. And so I would call this at this point, I would call this a positioning thesis, right? So I have a thesis and my thesis says, I think we compete against these folks. We're different in this way. This is the value only we can deliver. Um, these are the kind of customers that are going to love it. Therefore, this is the market we're going to win. But you don't know, like, like customers are weird. Products are weird. Markets are weird. You go to launch and in my experience, you don't get it all right. But after you've got a first wave of customers, you start seeing the patterns. And so you start seeing, ah, if it's this kind of a, these kinds of customers love what we do and they love it for this reason, right? These customers and here's who they compare us to and whatever. And eventually you get to a point where you're like, okay, now I'm ready to really tighten the positioning up because I know. Um, if it's B2B and you have a sales team, you know a lot about who customers compare you to, because that is a natural part of your sales process, right? The, the sales rep will be like, well, what are, you, you, what are you using now to solve the problem? And who else is on the short list? And who are we competing with? So if we have a sales team, we actually know quite a bit about that. If it's a zero touch sales model, then we know nothing. <laughs> and we're going to have to go and get that um, by actually going and doing customer research to find out what is the status quo in these accounts that we're winning in these accounts that we're winning. Did they look at something else? And if so, what was it? Why did we win? Why did they pick us? All that stuff. If we're lucky enough and we're, if we're B2B and there's salespeople talking, then we know a lot about that already. Yeah, that's true. Um, but e even in B2B, if you've got sort of a product led growth model where it's, fully DIY or self-serve, you know. Well, most product-led growth has sales somewhere in the mix. That's somewhere. the thing. Like yes. most product-led growth has some kind of a sales motion. And at that point, we can figure it out. Yeah. What we don't know is what gets them through the door for the initial trial or the initial free thing mm -hmm. that you're mm -hmm. doing. That we're going to have to go research that if that's super important and if we're gated there, like if we're having a problem there. If what we're really having a problem with is the conversion from the trial or the free thing to paid, again, if we've sold enough deals, we should start seeing the patterns in what yeah. works and what doesn't in the in the stuff we've already got if we haven't seen the patterns then you know we, we just haven't sold enough yet right right you just need more <laughs> more data more customers and those patterns will start to emerge this is it after a while you see it yeah and so once we're kind of whether we're at that early stage where we have what you that positioning thesis i love that i love the idea of just like positioning is kind of ever evolving um anyways but um let's say your early stage positioning thesis or you're you know maybe a little further down the line how do you start to uh communicate that positioning in a meaningful way yeah so i think there's lots of ways to to uh, make a positioning real for a company so 
in the clients that I work with, you know, we'll work through as a cross-functional team effort, we'll figure out what the positioning is. And uh, usually what we do to test the positioning is, and again, because I'm working with B2B companies and there's typically a sales team, what we'll do is we'll take the positioning and we'll translate that into a sales narrative or a sales pitch. And then we can use that sales pitch to test positioning. I think that's the best way to test it. Test it. It's way better than trying to turn it into messaging and put it on a web page and A-B test that because now I'm testing messaging and page layout and is the traffic I'm driving there good traffic or bad traffic and a whole bunch of other things. But if I've got a sales team, what I can do is I can build a sales pitch deck that reflects the positioning. I can get qualified prospects in the door and then I can test and see what's going on. And you get a lot of signal. Like I can see if the customer is getting confused or getting excited or you know, we're just losing them at some point. So that's usually how we test positioning. Once we have that tested and we validated it that, yeah, this works with a customer, then we can um, move on to, all right, I've got this positioning. I've got this sales narrative. How do we translate that into messaging and everything else? Um, typically what we've got um, is when we're building a good sales pitch, that communicates the positioning, that sales pitch is typically communicating our point of view on the market. Hmm. And our point of view on the market, usually it, there's a couple of things that you need to believe as a customer in order to be aligned with my point of view. And so is often marketing's job to build content and, and other things that help us communicate that point of view and help get customers to understand this two or three key things that they need to understand to understand why we're a good fit for them. So I'll, I'll give you an example of this. So um, the company that I did some work with way back when, and I love them, uh, called Level Jump. And what they do is sales enablement software. So it's software, if you've got a new rep, onboarded, you know, we're going to onboard the new reps so that they get to make a quota really fast. Or let's say we have a change in the product and we need to train company, train sales reps about this train change so that they can sell more. That's what these folks do. Now that's a really crowded market and there are lots of other solutions in that space, but you can basically take the solutions in that space and divide them up into a couple of buckets. Like some of them are just content management systems. Like it's a good way to have a repository of trusted information that the reps can come and pull from. Um, the other solutions in this space are more like an LMS, like a full on learning management system, set up a course, people get you know trained on it, you get certified, whatever. Now, if you look at Level Jump, they've only got, you know, they've got a, a lot of differentiated things, but they have a big one, which is they're the only one that's built on top of Salesforce. So their big differentiated value is you run this training and you can measure how the onboarding is, how effective the onboarding is with sales metrics. Like, so we did the training. Did the people get to first deal faster? Did they get to quota faster? None of the other ones can do that because they don't actually integrate with your sales data. So if I go to do that pitch, so that, so, you know, so here's the positioning. Who do I compete with? I got CMSs and LMSs. What's my differentiating feature? My differentiating features I built on Salesforce. What's the value of that? I can, um, 
I basically can measure the results of my sales enablement. So we are sales enablement that drives results, sales results. Who cares a lot about that? Well, if you're hiring a lot of sales reps, you care. If you don't have much turnover on the sales team, maybe you don't care that much. And, you know, so I'm hiring a lot of sales reps. I'm expanding. Maybe I have a lot of turnover in my sales team. So that's the positioning. Now we say, well, how are we going to communicate that? Well, first we've got the sales pitch, right? And the sales pitch, the thing that I have to get across in the sales pitch is this idea that it matters a lot to be able to measure the results. Hmm. That's it. And so my pitch is, you know, instead of doing a, like a product walkthrough where it's like, here's how we log in, here's how we set up, you know, training, here's how we distribute the training. Their sales pitch is sort of like this. They come in and they say, look, like I'm selling to the head of sales enablement, right? I come in and I say, hey, look, sales enablement is really important, right? It's really important. Why? It's important because every day your rep's not making quota costs you a lot of money. How much money? A lot. Here's a bunch of research that I did that shows it's like millions of dollars. You're wasting millions of dollars on sales enablement that doesn't drive sales results. Now look at you know look at all the other solutions out there. You can do it this way. You can do it that way. You, you know what? None of these things do. None of them actually let you drive results. So wouldn't it be good to have sales enablement that we could track with sales metrics? Mm -hmm. Now, if you say yes to that, I got you. <laughs> because I'm the only one that does that. And I haven't even pitched you my product yet. I just pitched you my point of view on the market. Hmm. So first we need to understand that story. Then when we go over the marketing side of the house, we're like, okay, well, what do you got to, what do I have to get a customer's head around in order to sell this thing? I got to get their head around this idea that, that sales enablement is a thing that we should be measuring with sales results. And so maybe I'm, you know, doing research on that. Maybe I'm figuring out for my own customers, how, you know, what is the difference between the, you know, like, how, like, like if a rep is poorly onboarded versus onboarded very well, how much money am I saving or losing because of that? Um, so, you know, if you look at their marketing materials and the way they communicate that and their messaging, like, you know, their their homepage is all about sales enablement that drives results. Here's the, here's the metrics we can move, right? Like an 80% improvement in time to first deal and a 50% improvement in time it makes your reps to make quota and things like that. And what is the dollar value of that? We can talk about that. So they're doing a lot of stuff on that. The other thing they're doing is, you know, a lot of content that sort of explains, you know, the whole market, like what is the difference between a CMS and an LMS versus something that's really sales onboarding or enablement, because customers don't really understand that. And you need to understand that in order to pick them. Mm, mm. This, is, this is so interesting. Mm. Um, and I love that story. I love, you know, how they really kind of tapped into the one thing, right? The differentiator. And that's it's all they differentiated need. Value, right? The nut right. of your positioning is what's the value you can deliver that no one else can. If you can yeah. figure that out and you can figure out who really cares a lot about that magic, that's where the magic yeah. happens. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing I think is really interesting about what you said is how you really, the, the positioning is tested with sales and not necessarily on a website or through advertising or, you know, yeah. I think that, uh, we've you know, been my, lucky we can get away with that. If we don't have salespeople, then, you know, then, then we got no other right. choice. Then we got to test it in other ways. But, right. you know, I would still, and I have worked with companies that have done this, that, you know, that even though they don't have salespeople, 
they're actually testing the positioning live with customers. Like they basically right. fake it that they have a sales they have a sales team temporarily, right? And so they force qualified customers instead of to self-serve to come through this sales detour so they can see whether or not the pitch works. Yeah, I love that. That's so interesting. And I think, you know, it's easy to test on a website because you have like numbers and data. Like how do you, what's your definition of success when you're judging it by sales conversations? Is it like, you know, some sort of gut feel like, hey, this feels like it's working or well, is so if you to- have like if you have experienced salespeople and, it, you know, you know, when a pitch is going good and a pitch is going bad. <laughs> like, But a lot of what we're doing when we test this pitch um, is we're looking for a bunch of specific things. So one is. Um, is the customer understanding it as they go along? So weak positioning, often what we'll see in a sales pitch is the reps doing a great job pitching it. We get three or four slides in and then the customer's like, I don't get it, man. Like back up and go to the beginning. <laughs> like, and I'm like, what is it again? And then they're like, back up and do it again. Or you'll get this thing where, you know, you'll get a few slides in and the customer will say, oh, I get it. You're just like Salesforce. And you're like, Oh God, no, we're nothing like this. <laughs> you know, so they think you're something you're not. Or the the absolute worst one is you'll get a few slides in and the customer will be making this face, right? Like, and then they'll be like, Oh yeah, man, I get it. I get I get what you are. I just don't get why anyone would pay for that. <laughs> like I could just do that with the spreadsheet, man. Why are we even talking? That sucks. And so they get you, but they don't get the value. And so we're looking for that, like in a live sales call, particularly if we're doing this over video, you can see a lot where the customer is confused versus, you know, great positioning is more like this. The customer's on and they're like, oh yeah, 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 man. We really have, oh yeah, we've got that. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, we got that too. Hmm. So show me how this works. Okay. And they're asking a thousand questions because they're super engaged you know, and they're asking about pricing because they want to know whether or not they can afford it because they're super engaged and they're pretty interested. So the difference between a good sales pitch and a bad sales pitch is pretty stark generally. Mm-hmm. So yes, we're like judging by number of head nods. That's the metric. On You're looking for this sales. space where, you know, like what you don't want is this yeah. space where they're like, what right. is it? <laughs> yeah. And then tick the box. This was a yes or this was a no. It's It's pretty easy to distinguish. Um, and so, you know, you've gotten to a place where, you know, you feel like you've got strong positioning. It is resonating in the sales pitch. It is working in the content and the messaging you're starting to, how do you know when you're done? Is there an end point to positioning? I wish we could just be done. That's it. That would be great. Yeah. When's Uh, it over? (laughs) But we're not, which sucks. Like, so, and so the, the, the reason we don't get to, so what happens is usually, you know, We'll do this group exercise. We'll figure out the positioning. We'll build a sales pitch. We'll go test it. Once we've tested it and we're feeling like that's, you know, been validated, we're now going to train the salespeople on this pitch. We're now going to marketing. We're going to forklift the messaging, make sure the messaging sounds all good. And uh, and then we're going to, you know, have campaigns aimed at the right target customers and all that stuff. Away we go. Now, the problem is, is that everything changes all the time. So, you know, your, your product doesn't stay the same. So you have a new release, so you have new capabilities. Some of those are really differentiated that might impact your differentiated value. So, you know, there's changes coming from you. There's also changes happening in the market. So, 
you have, you know, your competitors are putting out new releases and they're changing things and that, you know, so maybe they're catching up to you on things that used to be differentiated and now they're not anymore because these folks have caught up. Sometimes you have really big macro changes in the market, like, you know, a big competitor enters the market or there's some M&A activity and somebody buys somebody and all of a sudden someone who is a no big deal competitor is all up in your face. Um, and then you've got external forces like, um, well, like we're seeing a little bit of it right now. The economy's not so mm -hmm. great. Um, you know, you have sometimes what you'll have is a value proposition that's really around helping customers grow. And then the economy gets kind of flat and all of a sudden customers aren't really prioritizing growth. They're actually prioritizing um, reduction in spend or savings. Sure. And so that, that might require a, an adjustment on your positioning because your value just isn't hitting the way it is. Your value isn't valuable to those customers anymore. Mm -hmm. And so what I usually recommend is in the companies I worked in that were B2B, we typically had a standing meeting every six months. So uh, every six months we would get this cross-functional team together and we'd be running through the positioning and saying, okay, competitive alternatives, any new competitors popping up, anybody falling out? Like, is the competitive list the same? And then we look at differentiated capabilities. You know, are they still the same or have competitors caught up or maybe we've added some things. So we'll go down this capabilities. And then, you know, if anything is significantly changed there, is it enough that it actually changes our value themes? Uh, in which case, we better go back and relook at the positioning again, because it probably needs an adjustment. If we go through that and nothing's changed and we go, good, great, everything's fine. That See you in six months. <laughs> well, then we go away and we come back in six months. Um, so why, where I was, you know, when I was a VP marketing, we used to do that every six months. Um, the only time that we wouldn't be doing it every six months is if some big deal thing happened. So like once I worked at a company and we had this gorgeous positioning, um, but we were, uh, we had a strategic partnership with a company and our positioning kind of relied on that. And so we had this positioning, it worked really well for six months, but then that company got acquired. <laughs> and so we were like, oh shit. So we had to go back and look at it and adjust. And then we said, well, and then that worked really great for about eight months. And then the acquiring company themselves got acquired by a b even bigger company. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, the bigger company that acquired them sort of threatened to shut down the product that we were aligned with. <laughs> and then we were like, oh, no, <laughs> throw it all out, come back. And we had to have the emergency positioning meeting around that one. Like, what are we going to do about this thing? Um, and, you know, and so we changed the positioning a lot because there's like big stuff happening in the market. I've had other ones like... Um, it, it, they, they just shut it down. But the, the very first product I ever positioned, and I've been doing this a long time, so that's like 25 years ago or so, we positioned this product as an embeddable database for mobile devices. And it was super successful. We ended up getting acquired by a big company. And then that company later got acquired by SAP. And so recently I went and looked that product up just to see, you know, has, and the positioning was almost the same. Like it's oh, wow. remarkably unchanged. Like they, they talked more about uh, Internet of Things than they did about just mobile devices. But otherwise, the positioning was pretty was it hadn't changed all that much. Hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue later. So I don't know. So sometimes sometimes the positioning sticks and it works for a really long time. Sometimes it's good for six months and then you got to throw it out and kind of do something again. And 
that right. you really don't know what's happening until until you see we, we, none of us can predict the future unfortunately yeah. for sure for sure but it, it's a good tip right to like revisit it every six months so you could revisit it every six months for 20 years and decide it doesn't need to be changed but you got to keep on top of it and well that's it if you don't revisit it then the risk is things start to slip and you don't notice until it's a problem <laughs> and then it's like an emergency and then it's like oh no and now we're you know we're slow to react and it takes a while for the new positioning to hit and we've wasted six months because we weren't on top of it i think we saw that a lot with the pandemic where mm -hmm. i mean literally every company yeah. should have been repositioning at that stage a lot of companies and some, needed to reposition yeah so, and never been so busy never been so busy in my life like oh, yeah, yeah there's just a lot of repositioning work and now what we're getting is you know in certain industries things are opening back up again and so we're doing a lot of positioning around that um, but, you know, but unfortunately, we're also seeing a lot of a lot of positioning because the economy's crappy and some parts of, you know, some buyers have really slowed down because the economy stuff before that there was like supply chain things and that were really impacting certain businesses. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen. They're completely outside of the business's control and completely impossible to predict that we just need to roll with it. For sure. For sure. Um I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show today. I learned so much and I, you know, I read your content. I've read your book twice and I learned so much today. Well, thank, so, you. <laughs> thank you so much. I know I'm going to take a lot away from from this conversation's next steps. I hope everybody listening will as well. Um, thanks everyone who did listen in. We will be back with another episode soon. Uh, April mentioned jobs to be done. That's what we're talking about next time with Stephen awesome. Wunker. Join us then. Great. Thanks so much for having me.